today on Doomed. Ladies and gentlemen, Rush Limbaugh is dead. The conservative talk show, honestly, legend in a way, and we'll discuss how so on this episode, who has who is leaving behind, really, a horrific, really horrible legacy. And unfortunately, I think we'll be dealing with Rush Limbaugh well past, you know, his, his passing. And when I heard that Rush Limbaugh had passed away, this person is the first that came to my mind to have on this show. And let me just pull us up on the screen and I can formally introduce him. Joining me now, he is the president and CEO of Media Matters, as well as the founder or creator, I should say, of, I think you were probably uh, the biggest thorn in Rush Limbaugh's side, if I, uh, if I, if I, if I can say so. Uh, I'll take it. Yeah, of the Stop Rush campaign, with the Stop Rush campaign, Angelo Carusso, I'm sorry, I should have, uh, I've had you on the show before, <laughs> Caruso. Is that right? You got it. Nice. You know, I usually ask my guests, but you were on the show before, and I was like, I got this. And of course, as usual, it comes time for me to deliver, and I fail. It's fine. It's fine. A lot of people mess up my first name, which is the thing that I find totally unforgivable. But the last name, I think it's. I think everybody gets a pass on that. All right. Good. Good. I mean, Angela. It's Angela. Yeah. People mess it up so much. It's actually kind of funny. It happens a lot. Way Do too they... much. I get a lot of. Yeah, I get a lot of Andrew. Andrew. Um, okay. Which is like I, inexplicable, but it it is plagued me my entire life. That's so I, that yeah. When I was looking at it, I was like, "Are you are you going to tell me that people say?" Angel O, because that's the only thing I would see other than, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I know. They jumped the, it's, I get, a, I get a lot of Andrew. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, we could, we could talk about our names all day, I'm sure. Uh, people say Binder all the time for me. Um, <laughs> but everyone knows it's Binder now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, yesterday was a, uh, you know, uh, some people were celebrating, and I think uh, they're not wrong. Uh, but I think they're, they're celebrating a bit too soon, to be quite honest with you. Uh, Rush Limbaugh died. And I feel like, I, I, honestly, when I talk about it, I, I sort of stutter because I have so many different things going through my mind that I can bring up first because there really isn't a specific, you know, usually when when you think of a major conservative personality or pundit, you can usually think of one or two controversies that they were involved in that sort of defines them. But with Rush Limbaugh, honestly, I can think of probably a uh, hundred off the top of my head, and that's not even like 10% of, of what he's been involved in. That is fair. And that's the thing. I mean, everybody will have the, especially if you weren't a listener regularly, you know, people will have the flashpoint you know, the things that they remember that sort of filtered into their ecosystem because it was so terrible. And, and it's, it's very, it's, it'll be different for almost everybody. Like the one or two terrible things that he did or said that, uh, that everybody remembers. Most people will remember his attacks on Michael J. Fox and 
but then after that, it starts to splinter, right? The attacks on Sandra Fluke or um, a lot of the gay community was really, you know, really was bothered by and remembers all the damage that he did in terms of reading the names of like dead, uh, dead people that died of AIDS. Um, others will remember when he celebrated the death of like Jerry Garcia and was like super excited about that and was mocking him for being a pothead and, um, and a liberal and a hippie. Like everyone has a different second thing. Um, that they remember and yeah. for people for people who aren't familiar i mean i'm sure hearing everything you said before and after this specific <laughs> thing they get they they sort of can get the gist of it but when you say reading the names of people who died from aids you're not talking in remembrance of oh he, no no yes. he would celebrate them he would play <laughs> right. music and laugh and jeer and this was in like the late 80s and early 90s and it was a recurring segment and it was a celebration um, it would, you know, it was done as a, you know, these, these sort of people have had their comeuppance. Um, right. he really, he really hated, uh, I mean, he hated a lot of people, but, um, he really had a special hatred for, uh, for, for the, for the gay community. Right. So let, let's sort of start at the beginning here. Now, now Rush Limbaugh comes in, uh, he sort of becomes, I mean, we could go through his whole history if we really, you know, I'm sure there's a whole, I'm sure there'll be a movie and everything. You got Ben Shapiro Productions Presents, I'm sure will come out. Um, but, you know, he, he came up as a, as a conservative talk show host. Uh, that's what he becomes known for. And, you know, and I think this was going around a lot. And I, th I think let's get this out of the way now, because I think it is important to sort of mention, but also define what we mean when we say this. A lot of people were saying, and people who were critical of him too, were saying the guy was a very, very talented uh, talk radio person. He was very good at what he did. And now that's not necessarily patting him on the back and commending him because it's important to understand that, I think, so you can fully understand just how he was able to use his talent to extract the maximum amount of harm possible uh yes and also you know i think yeah I, I, people get mad at me too when i talk about the fact that he was talented and i i obviously don't do it in the kind in the same thing in the, to sort of um as sort of a praise or some but it is a recognition because to your point it, it not only meant that he was going to be more devastating but the other part about that is that because of that talent it actually meant that at multiple points there were different paths that he could have taken that would have led him to the same or similar prominence um, as well as uh, similar money. So like if you take the money and the, the, the platform off the table, because they would have roughly been the same, um, he actually didn't need to, to, do, to, to do all the content that he did um, to, to, to take advantage of that talent. Um, he would have been able to be Rush Limbaugh, a massive radio star, um, if he did a more or a less destructive form of talk radio because of the, what he did in terms of the production quality. Right, right. And someone who sort of I, I also sort of say that about and again, not to praise, but so people can really understand how he's able to use what his his the gift he has to do the worst thing possible. And he sort of walked in Rush Limbaugh's footsteps is Alex Jones. I think that's another great example. Like the guy obviously is able to talk. He's got a voice for radio and he could have, he could have even just stuck with the alien conspiracies that he stuck with in the beginning of his career before deciding to go down the harmful path that he, he, he very uh, consciously made. I mean, it's sort of the same thing, I think. 
It is. Glenn Beck, too. Um, Glenn, Glenn Beck is, is pretty talented. Um, and when he, he does, he did a series for a while that was like reading Edgar Allan Poe stories and sort of turning them into radio broadcasts that were then totally not political. Um, he he would have, you know, he's very good at those. Like they, he would have been able to build just a sufficient career off of off of that kind of engaging broadcasting. He just didn't. He decided to be Glenn Beck. Right. And right. Um, I think it does. Unlike Hannity, who doesn't have a choice. Right. Hannity actually doesn't have talent. He's just a ditto head with a microphone. So he gets he just repeats back and echoes the ideas that other people sort of spit out there. Um, it, Hannity wouldn't be Hannity if he didn't actually have the ideology and the politics. But Rush Limbaugh would have actually been a, a cultural figure and a significant broadcaster without the sort of the far right politics. Right, right. And while we're on this, I think it's perfect to, to then talk about because I saw this, you know, this was being this was a, a topic online yesterday when Rush Limbaugh died. The discussion of, you know, comparing him with someone like Howard Stern. Like, it was Rush Limbaugh just another one of those shock jocks? And, you know, I, I think that's very dangerous to do. Well, first of all, uh, straight up, Howard Stern created a very different type of show. I mean, you can say his, his jokes were misogynistic and, and, and punched down at, at, the, the, at people. Sure. But at the same time, well, A, he's a completely, uh, seems to be a changed person and has apologized for a lot of that stuff. And uh, which Rush Limbaugh never did, and he never changed who he was in the type of show he did. But also, you know, again, there, there's, there's, I think, levels of harm. And Howard Stern, he would say those jokes, and I'm sure people would be hurt, but, you know, most people wouldn't walk away from Howard Stern's show saying, I'm now going to get politically active against women or against gay people. They would just maybe, you know, laugh at, laugh at something, and sure, that's, you know, of course that's a problem, but not as big as someone who's listening to Rush Limbaugh and saying, yeah, I agree with you, Rush, I hate those people. Yeah, yeah, but well, the the shows were very different. I mean, they were they were marketed differently. They were uh, they they were clearly different. Pro, you know, they were definitely different programs. Um, Rush Limbaugh's was a political program. It, the idea was to to actually create offline action, and I it, he really was. And that if you listen to the tributes and everything, but it was the case that he was a political figure, meaning that he was get out the vote operation. He would he would engage in a different kind of, of he was sort of like a, a um, you know, a legislative whip where he would actually whip up votes for, for, for legislation that he wanted or dissuade others from voting. He, he was a political figure, which meant that it, it had, a, it had a different context. The only thing way that they're related is that um, they each sort of forged a path in the industry that others then started to replicate in their respective spheres. Um, and, you know, Howard Stern really did transform morning radio. Um, and in a way that I think made a lot of people's mornings better, um, depending on where you lived. And, and Limbaugh, you know, tr transformed political talk. Right. right. Now, I have, I have no idea how old you are. So I have to ask, when did you first become aware of Rush Limbaugh? Uh, in the 90s when he was on TV. I used to wake up with my grandfather and watch his shows. Um, he was on TV for only a couple of years. And um, I mean, I was so young at that point that it didn't really register and he didn't have a very long TV career, but that's when I first became aware. And then again, I became more focused on Limbaugh when I was in college, right? As I was like starting to come out uh, and starting to do more political work. Um, honestly, my whole family was in Limbaugh. So it, the reality is a, a lot of the personal anxiety that I felt about what would happen if I told my family and some of my loved ones 
I blamed on on him, right? Because it felt like I sort of attributed their politics to Rush Limbaugh because he was such a fixture. And so I started to do like satirical blogging about him. And um, it, it's just a lot of my, uh, so again, this would be like 2004 is when I started to think about Rush Limbaugh the way I think about him now, which is somebody that, um, you know, created an atmosphere that that sort of affected other other people. Right, right. It's interesting you said it, your, your grandpa, because I have a distinct memory of, uh, after school, elementary school throughout the 90s, I would go to my grandma's house because my parents worked and my grandma would watch me. And at the time, I wasn't aware, but she would put Rush Limbaugh on the radio and just go about doing her, you know, her daily, uh, you know, house housework. Uh, yeah. And I, I honestly, you know, as an elementary school kid, I, I had no idea who he was. But that voice of his was so distinct that when I got older and knew who he was, you know, in high school, my teen years, I was like, holy shit, my grandma, that's who my grandma was listening to all this time. And, you know, again, my, my grandma, you know, she, she, um, you know, she, I started talking more about politics with her when Obama was running in 2008. And she was like an old school type Republican. So she liked McCain. Um, but at the same time, though, uh, unfortunately, she passed away before she was able to vote in 2012. But when I did talk to her during the primary, the Republican primaries, then she was already turning away from uh, the Republicans, regardless of listening to Rush. She hated Romney, hated Santorum, hated all those guys. And she did see, you know, that, oh, my grandson has health care because of President Obama. I sort of like him now. So, you know, she, even someone who wasn't super like partisan like she was and was able to just, you know, I don't think she was all, you know, she just sort of went with what I guess she saw was working. She still would listen to Rush Limbaugh, though, and take these sort of guys. She also, really interesting, at that same time she would talk nice about Obama, she would watch Bill O'Reilly every night, really liked him, hated Hannity, though. Thought there was something about him that she just she really annoyed her and she didn't she didn't trust him, she said. So, you know, it's, it's just interesting how these different guys come across when, I mean, to me, they're all, you know, obviously different ranges of talent, but they're all in the same boat, you know? Yeah, and I think what makes Limbaugh, for a lot of listeners, even when they started to turn away, why there was inertia, it's sort of like in video games, you know, like some of those video games where they're like world builders, you know, like Minecraft, and you're like, you're building a whole world. And it is immersive in a way. And his program was not just like the way people who don't listen think about traditional political shows or even cable news. It's not, it's not one program, it is a world. And so he's a world builder. And, and the result of that though, is that you, when you were listening, you were immersed in, this, in, in that world. And I think it was partly because he had the capability to do that, but it also meant that people could start to turn away uh, in terms of their practice, but they would still simmer in in the world that he was creating. And look, the other part of it, let's be real, is that ultimately he ended up taking over talk radio between 12 and 3 p.m. So if you, in a lot of places, unless you were in places that had a competitor, you didn't have a choice. You know, it was like, it was talk radio uh, and listening to Limbaugh or maybe another station that would give you kind of like like traffic updates and everything. There wasn't There wasn't any competition. So uh, that's another that was another factor, right? Even people that turned away were still listening because it wasn't anything else. Right, right. And you know, while while we're talking about young, you know, we were uh, you know, sort of our first experience with Rush Limbaugh was when we were young. There is legitimately, and and Kaylee McKinney, the the last press secretary under um 
under the Trump administration, she came out and said, oh, I remember my dad putting on uh, Rush Limbaugh while driving me to school every morning in his pickup truck. And, and you know, all my friends from school knew that if they were going in the McKinney car, then they'd be listening to Rush Limbaugh, too, when she called herself a Rush baby. And, you know, I don't think people really know that, like, she wasn't just, like, making up a term right there in her tweets. Like, no, there's actually, like, a legitimate thing called Rush babies, and they're conservatives who became conservative pretty much because they grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh because their parents listened to him. Uh, hold on. Uh, your your audio just cut out. Oh, sorry. There we there go. go. Uh, a lot of them are really prominent and extremely destructive right now. So like Dana Lash, who is at the NRA and has a, a, a show, she's a Rush baby. Um, oh, there's, I mean, you could go down the list. Even Mike Pence, to a degree, you know, instead of him being like a Rush baby, he's still like a, a, like a, a, a progeny, right? He was a radio host who was sort of put in the mold of Rush Limbaugh and a lot at the time he was marketed as and endorsed by Limbaugh as a, a decaf version of Rush Limbaugh. That's how they used to market his show as they were trying to get broader syndication. I mean, you really can find much of the right-wing echo chamber now, if they're not Rush babies, they were still in some way connected to, to him as they were you know, moving their way up, up, up the chain. Right, right. It's, it's, it's interesting to see, obviously, how... There are people like you and me who heard him when he was young and 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 sort of internalized what the, who he was and and when we grew up and be and, and understood who he was we're like oh that's who we listened to we really don't like him and then there's people who grew up listening to him was like yeah my parents listened to him I like yeah. him you know it's it's and I think it's worth pointing out how many people that was uh, you know put aside of his peak in like the late 90s early 2000s where he would average 25 potentially 30 million listeners. Even when he was on the D sign, like when his ratings were starting to fall apart, he was still getting 18 million listeners. Right. Like he had 15 million listeners in, in October, November, and December. And his show was sporadic, um, and it obviously wasn't as engaging as it had been. I mean, that is a huge amount of people that are listening, not for a, a half hour, three hours. I, I mean, that is every, I mean, that is a lot of time. I and mean, there's a lot of people. Um, that that were a part of that uh, a part of that a part of that world. So so now let's talk about what brings you to the point of creating the Stop Rush campaign. Give us a, some background. You know what was the moment where you were like, you know, I, the, the, this now now I got to do something about this. The um, the big thing was you know it it was clear after you know, I'd done some work on campaign against Glenn Beck, which is how I ended up at Media Matters. And um, but at the same time that I was started doing the Glenn Beck work, what was really clear to me was that because um, I had been talking to advertisers, and the thing that always struck me is they didn't know most of the time. That doesn't give them. I mean, I'm not like apologizing for big corporations, but it it always was like, what? What do you mean you don't know how bad Glenn Beck is or how bad that your ads are even running there? Um, and that that was where the connective tissue was, because I had had that long background with Rush. And I was like, I wonder if his advertisers know the same thing. Um, and it turned out to be the case that they didn't. Um, and so there was moments where his advertisers were contacted and it was the same response always. And then he went on this rant in 2012 um, against, uh, at that point, a law, a law student, Sandra, Sandra Fluke. And it wasn't just a one-off comment. He attacked her for three days straight 
Um, 76 individual attacks. He called her a slut. He said she should post sex tapes. I mean, it was it was just absolutely over the top. Um, and that sort of took off and sort of catalyzed this major advertiser campaign, um, which the Stop Rush thing was already there and had been do- doing some of that work. So it ended up becoming a bit of a nexus for that organizing effort. And it was a journey through the craziness of talk radio, which at that point, it was true. Most of the advertisers had no idea um, that they were advertising on a show, but he was on 630 stations at the time. And so in order to track those advertisers, people were listening to um, they were listening to the stations. I mean, at that point, it sounds so crazy, but the way that they did commercials is there was a person at a lot of these stations still that would take a tape and pull it out of the broadcast device and swap in the ad. I mean, it was that analog, which meant that no one in the country was tracking it. So companies, big companies would run ads and they would say, look, keep us off controversial. That's what their like buzzword was, off controversial programming. But no one was keeping track. There's 600 engineers swapping tapes all over the country. No one, they were just filling up the commercial time. So it did create this massive chaos um, in that this group of volunteers were actually creating the single largest advertising database for talk radio, um, which you know led to multiple years of efforts. But the genesis, or at least the flashpoint, was that Sandra Fluke moment. And the previous thing was that it kind of connected to the Glenn Beck thing. I was always shocked that most companies had no idea. Right. You know, what's interesting too, thinking about it is even if they, they did like actually pay attention to an advertiser that said, I don't want to go on controversial during that time period, you know, controversial was probably considered a, uh, Howard Stern getting an uh, adult star on the air to to orgasm or something, but Rush yep. Limbaugh talking about uh, uh, the, the LGBT community in a horrific homophobic way would not be controversial. That is true. Um, a lot of a lot of shows that were hosted by people of color, especially smaller syndicated ones, were considered controversial because of the topics that they would discuss. Um, even if they weren't actually controversial at all, they oftentimes would fall into that. Ca- it was it was an incredible going through that process really showed that the industry, one, not only never adapted to the modern landscape, but that they they were defining controversial on the part of the advertisers. And so advertisers were saying, you know, keep us off the controversial stuff. And they were leaving Limbaugh and Mark Levin and Michael Savage, who attacked people that had autism and said it was a hoax, right? And all kinds of awful stuff like that. I mean, he wasn't considered controversial, um, uh, but a, a couple of black hosts in Georgia were. Right. And, and that was the thing. I mean, I would look at these lists and be like, this is absolutely incredible. Then a lot of it was malice. I'm sure that was a piece of it. And it was also that there had never been any any accountability at all. Like once, once they stripped away the fairness doctrine and a lot of that deregulation, not that that was affecting the advertising, but it almost felt like they all had a free-for-all. The only thing they care about is how much they power their antennas. Everything else is like, no, there are no rules on radio. Right. Now, I, I had an eye-opening experience earlier today when I was on the Majority Report. Sam Cedar is, is off this week, so I was just, I was the old man uh, today with the young bucks over there now. And I made a reference to the 2012 DNC like slogan, uh, GM is alive and Osama is dead. You remember that one? And they had no idea what I was talking about. So I'm just, yeah, I know. So, (laughs) so when you mentioned Sandra Fluck, I think a lot of people don't know who she is, who might be listening to this. So can can you really quick, like, I I think people should know, like, it's not like Rush Limbaugh. I mean, obviously those things would have been horrific to say 
to to any woman. But you know, if it's a if it's a public figure, at least you can say then she can fight back in public, and she's used to this type of stuff, and she has an entourage to defend her as well. And you know, but this was just a a a law student. Yeah, she was a law a Georgetown law student, and she basically through an internal administrative process. It's not even like she was doing something that would be this huge public stunt that would have gotten a massive amount of public attention. It was basically that she appealed to the administration to cover contraception as a part of the university's healthcare program. And like, it wasn't even, it was like a normal bureaucratic thing that somehow made its way into like a local write-up that then got its way to drudge. And that's a lot of what Limbaugh read, but it wasn't, that's it. He basically read this like blurb about this like thing that was happening at Georgetown about like their their own their, about whether they were going to cover contraception and turned her into this massive villain. He attacked her as a slut by saying that and that was what he said repeatedly dozens of times that the reason why she was advocating for this was because she was that she wanted other people to to you know basically cover the cost of her of her being a slut. And his argument was think about if she needs to ask people. I mean, one of the things he was saying that. You think about how much sex she's having if she can't afford the condoms for it, that she needs the the school to pay for her contraception. And that's what led him to say she should post the sex tapes because he was saying so he was not only attacking her directly, but then was accusing her of producing pornography, saying that she should be posting it if she wanted something in return, like free contraception. I mean, it was a three day I think in total, he spent almost 58 minutes out of that time in uh, just ripping into this completely unknown at the time student at Georgetown Law School. If I, I, I didn't remember this part, and you just reminded me a, a version of this. I came across a quote yesterday that someone shared where he basically was attributing the amount of sex she must have been having to like, oh, she needs birth control every time or something, which, which I don't recall this back then, but... That meant he didn't even understand how birth control worked. Like, you don't need to take correct. A, bir a birth control every time you have sex. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. He definitely, he definitely thought that you need to take the birth control pill um, every time you have sex. And, um, and, and, and yeah, yeah, he did. He definitely thought that. He definitely thought, ironically, that it was Viagra, which is covered under health insurance. At that, at that time, it wasn't controversial for health insurance plans to cover Viagra but not cover birth control, um, which is part of where some of that ridiculous needing to advocate for it in the first place came from. Um, yeah, he did not know that. And, and, and that's the other part. It's that much of what he did wasn't just venomous and terrible. It, it was wrapped around just basic, not accurate information at all. Um, I mean, it, it was constant stream of, of lies and, and I, I do think that that's what made his combination so potent, right? Is that he was the, you know, the real poison pill outside of hate is that you're hopping everybody up on, on complete misinformation. Um, right. Did, didn't he have a, 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 a controversy with Viagra where he was caught with someone else's medication or something like that? It, it, it was OxyContin, him and his friend. Oh, right. um, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, Viagra, too. It was Vi the Viagra controversy was at the airport um, that in, in Costa Rica, which he, he went to regularly, hmm. you can actually buy a lot of drugs like that at the airport. Um, and then he got caught bringing back hundreds of pills, him and his friends each, uh, which is they ex far exceeded the limit that you're allowed to import. And that's how he got busted uh, with his Viagra. Um, it was a... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. He's um, it's an it's just everything, and that's the other thing. It's just it's not it's the hypocrisy. I mean, everything he did, you can find to be hypocritical. So you know, he ripped on gay people, would attack gay culture, and yet the only thing in the world he wanted was Elton John to sing at his fourth wedding, um, and paid a just unbelievably large amount of money to convince Elton John to come because he loved he loved Elton John, and it's like you know, but yet he would attack anybody that would play. Elton John music as corrupting society. So it was like this incredible layer of hypocrisy on top of, of just the, the lies and the, uh, and the abuse. I, I honestly didn't know. I think I recall the Elton John playing for him thing, but I didn't know it was, I thought it was just like a status thing. Like, you know, Elton John's a big star and he wants to impress his guests. I didn't know he himself had this love for Elton John. I did not know that. Loved him. Yeah. Big fan. Huge fan of Elton John. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, was Rush Limbaugh was Rush was yeah of course of course Elton John's a very talented uh, musician yeah, yeah. he yeah. has some classics I mean hell just as I'm just thinking the Lion King song right now the rest off the top of my head <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but you know was was Rush Limbaugh I don't I don't I don't remember I should have looked into this one was Rush Limbaugh another case because we were just talking about how talented he was so I, maybe I maybe he didn't want to become a a talk show, a, a, a talk radio guy to begin with. Was Rush another case like the Ben Shapiro's and, and, and Steven Crowder's of the world who basically wanted a career in Hollywood and just didn't have didn't weren't cut out for it? So they basically went into conservative talk and rail against it to hide their disdain for not having the talent to be part of it? He always wanted to be in radio. It was in his blood. He did it when he was a All kid. Right. All right. He was like a prodigy at radio um, and in school. He worked in radio stations. You know, he... He did um, disc jockeying. Like he really, he he understood the and at the time the mechanics of it. He did engineer work so he could figure out how to operate it. Um, it it is something he always wanted uh, was to was to do was to do radio. Right. Um, the, the rare case is, of the conservative having talent to do that they actually wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's the thing. He actually right. He want like and that's like there's no reason for him to be so mean. It's like his life worked out. You know, like that's the thing. It's like his life. He didn't need to be like there was no trauma, there was no rejection. Um, there, then none of that happened to him. Happy like, family actually, life growing no, up. Yeah, there was no. Yeah, his his yes, yes. He had a normal, like a a very normal, simple, you know, comfortable life. This was there was no strife or struggle. Um, you know, he came up in a relatively small town, but there was no like foreclosing of opportunity. There is no. There is actually no thing that you can even point to and be like, "Oh, that's how he became a villain." Um, it, it, it there is like there needs to be. There is no. There's no actual moment that led to that. It that's, is. That's really yeah. interesting. Not even there wasn't yeah. even Rush Limbaugh on the TV and his dad's car on the on the radio in his dad's car to to warp his mind. Because, that's right. There was know. no Rush Limbaugh. That, right. There's no, there was no moment. There that it is. It is also inexplicable. Um, that's incredible. Except that it's yeah. 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 There was no, like, there's nothing that actually ended up being the rejection, you know, um, whereas even Trump, you know, is a grievance person. He, there, he can point to very specific things where people doubted him or maybe didn't make him feel comfortable. His dad. You know, they all have that. Right. Right. They have grievances, even if they're not legitimate, they can at least say they have a grievance. Um, and, and Limbaugh really just embraced the idea that he was just mean, um, and didn't need a reason to be, which is kind of worse. Uh, because it it there's a degree of, of glee that he would get from hurting and tormenting other people. Um, he really liked causing 
he really he really he enjoyed it. Like he liked the idea that he was actually hurting specifically marginalized communities. He thought that they didn't really have a place, um, and that the reaction that they would get would would it was he, he thought it was very amusing, and that was really his fuel was um, a lot of the a lot of the the pain that he would cause. He called them tweaks or media tweaks or. He'd call them women tweaks or gay tweaks, but he was whatever he was hitting, um, he would delight in the idea that they would that it would hurt them. Now, what did he have to say about this? Did he? Did he? I'm assuming he did. If, if, if I'm trying to remember, and I feel like he did, what did he have to say about the Stop Rush campaign? Um, he um, uh, he said it was like jock itch, and um, <laughs> what? very specific comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, uh, which is a, a, I, I really that really I really want to stick in there. I was like I never that seems strange. Um, and then he uh, accused it of being fake. Um, and he then hired a crisis manager. You know the the campaign was was ultimately very effective in that it cost the talk radio industry hundreds of millions of dollars in just a short period of time. And Rush Limbaugh lost lost his home station, the station that he was born on, that he rose up on the 80s, his flagship station in New York called WABC, which he had been on for at that point for over 30 years, they dropped him. And not only did they drop him, and he wasn't on the air in New York for a year after that, um, but so did Chicago and then Kansas. And then it started happening. In total, 40 stations pulled him off the air because he was no longer profitable. So he could pretend that it wasn't real, but it was hurting him bad. And then he started, he hired this person, his name is Brian Glickwick, um, who's a crisis manager who started to um, try to find ways to neutralize the effort or, uh, or undermine it. But, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Jock itch. That's, that's, that's what he said about it. That's incredible. Now, didn't he, uh, that station that he ended up being on in New York again, it ended up being like this big, like all conservative, Radio station, right? I feel like it's like all, still to this day all conservative talk. Was that? Yeah, cre- yeah, the, yeah. Was, was that cre- was that created in like the wake of all this, or did it exist before that? Because I don't recall it. Yeah, no. So the so WABC um, was owned by a big a big radio company um, that dropped him, and then a uh, it dropped him, and he didn't have a home. And then a small station in New Jersey that had a tiny bit of space in New York picked him up about a year and a half after he lost his spot in New York. So he claimed he had a New York footprint. Uh, But then ultimately, and this is probably why I haven't heard of it, that station he ended up back on, which is the one that also has Rudy Giuliani, because a right-wing billionaire bought it and gave him Mm -hmm. back his old spot. Um, And and that's... (laughs) That is that is it. That's exactly how it happened. He he got back on almost for nostalgia, um, and they basically bought the station. A right wing billionaire bought the station, gave him his old spot back, gave Brian Kilmeade a show, Rudy Giuliani a show, um, and just kind of let them rip, uh, and didn't really care about uh, whether or not the actual station had any commercial viability or connection to reality. Yeah, that's. I, th- I think like that. That uh, what was his name? The, the Guardian Angel guy has his own show on that station. That's how, how you know, they're much they're looking for hosts, you know. But but it is yes. like the last of the terrestrial radio talk, all talk stations left in New York City. I think like conservative yep. talk radio is literally like the last bastion of talk radio on the old school airwaves. It's true. And it still reaches a lot of people. Um, I, the thing that I, I always find really uncomfortable about all of it is that it's, it's all a fiction. Um, the, 
the company that employed Limbaugh is $20 billion in debt. They've been that much in debt for at least 10 years. They can't pay their debt. They have to keep taking out new loans to, uh, to pay the interest on the previous loans. It shouldn't exist. And, and so you know, the, the products lose commercial viability. The, the, the shows themselves are not terribly profitable because so many advertisers still stay away from talk radio. And the actual like employers of them are broke. And yet they basically survived on a string of loans um, for reasons I still don't quite understand. It's just a lot of it is that it, it's like inertia, like the idea that you could have talk radio without Limbaugh. Even five years ago, I remember sitting down at these radio conferences and it, the, I, it was impossible for them to consider what talk radio would look like. And they, I guess this feeling that that the industry would not be able to survive or even have a chance of securing loans if they didn't have the mythology of Limbaugh. Right. Did Did you see, by the way, that you know he's he is dead now? So you would think there's no more the Rush Limbaugh show. Did you see that they're planning to keep the Rush Limbaugh Limbaugh show going, based on all archived material? And there will be plenty. Um, right. I mean, when I saw I, I, when I saw keeping tabs, I had listened to four thousand. Um, 4,000, like 59 hours of Limbaugh show. And that barely scratched the surface of the amount of content that's available on his program. And um, so they, but it, but I think the reason that they're doing the best of kind of reinforces for you how, how essential he was to that time slot. And they don't have a, a backup strategy. And they, it is, you know, the industry itself will be in crisis for some time, but that doesn't mean that the consequences are any different, right? That it, no matter what happens, the audience that they've hopped up will stay and they will find people to give them things that Rush Limbaugh gave them in terms of lies and bigotry. Um, and, you know, Sean Hattie will be there and Mark Levin and those things, they're not going to untangle for a, a really, a really long time. And we will be living in the world that Limbaugh helped break, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. Right. You mean he, he wasn't, he wasn't prepping snurdly to take over for him at the big, the big moment when he could no longer do it. <laughs> no, no, I know. I, I think Laura Ingram thinks she's going to get it. And she has been aggressively trying to take, you know, to position herself to take the time slot. Um, but really, truly nobody, nobody in the in radio industry actually wants her back. She used to have a show on talk radio and, um, uh, she really, she's one of the, all the people she's lobbying the hardest to be to be his replacement but I, I i really would be very surprised if they gave it to her right now now let's talk a little bit more about you know because i in, in my opinion i feel like again a lot of people let's talk about this part actually you know over the trump the during the trump era i i feel like and i talked to you with you a little bit about this before we went on the air i feel like a lot of people and a lot of people got into politics in 2015 2016 because of trump and I feel like a lot of people missed out on Limbaugh being like the big boss of the conservative movement. And they sort of don't get how big this is, him dying and, and what it means to the conservative movement. Because Trump sort of stole Limbaugh's spotlight. Like yeah. Limbaugh was hands down the most, you know, and again, I use this word not in a positive manner, the most entertaining, the most charismatic, you know, of all the 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 big wig, you know, the big name uh, conservatives out there. And then Trump just strolls in, uh, becomes the, the, the Republican nominee, becomes the president. And, you know, Limbaugh's still doing his show and you just don't hear about him as much as you did. I mean, dur I feel like during the Obama years, 
Rush Limbaugh was was leading the charge on what the conservative movement was going to knock Obama for every on any given day. I I have two day, two things to back that up to prove just how much what your observation is correct. One is that Rush Limbaugh barely did TV. Like he would never really do interviews. It was rare. He'd do one a year, maybe. Um, a few months after Trump came into office, Rush Limbaugh started going on Fox News a bunch. And it continued that trend for, for a while. And there's a reason for that. It's because, and not only did he start going on Fox News a bunch, but Fox News at night, in particular Hannity or Ingram, would do him a solid by playing part of the Rush Limbaugh show on their show. So Trump could hear it. And it was a example that they, they knew they needed in order to stay relevant because Trump was such a TV person and because Trump had taken on that big presence in the party that they needed to get Limbaugh's ideas in front of Trump and the only vehicle was TV. So, so in the first year or two, Limbaugh did more interviews on Fox than he did the previous decade combined. Um, wow. Just to show, I mean, he just constantly went on um, because he needed to show Trump that he could be relevant. And then... The, the other data point is Limbaugh never did Twitter and then all of a sudden started doing Twitter um, in the last couple of years because he it's the, it was another medium, right? He was following Trump in order to stay connected to that space. And I think, you know, but it is a reflection of your observation that what 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 Limbaugh would made Limbaugh relevant was both the ability to command a huge audience and attention, but also that he straddled the whole spectrum of the right wing, right? Establishment conservatives, really far right fringe people, right? Alex Jones doesn't attack Rush Limbaugh as a fake conservative. No one attacks Rush Limbaugh as a rhino, no matter what he says, right? No one attack, no one, because he straddled the full spectrum and could connect otherwise disconnected audiences. And therefore he became the barometer and the line for what was in or what was good and what was bad and what was out. Um, he was the arbiter of that. I mean, they used to refer to him as the titular head of the Republican Party for decades. Um, and so that is a, a, a role that he held for, for a while. And then when Trump came, you know, Limbaugh, even let's say he was mad at Trump, he could never criticize him. If he strategically disagreed, he would have to tap dance around. The only time Limbaugh ever hedged uh, was when he was trying to say something negative about a thing that Trump was doing. Uh, and that shows you who was really in control and it's because Trump leapfrogged him and he was, uh, you know, he was a, he basically did what Limbaugh had been advocating for, for a while too, which was he, you know, Limbaugh had advocated for something like Trump. And, and I think in some ways Limbaugh felt vindicated. Um, but yeah, Trump definitely supplanted him as the, the voice. Why do you think Fox News never reached out and, and tried to give, I mean, maybe he was just well out of their budget even for Fox News, but why do you think uh, they never tried to give him his own show on Fox if, if they wanted to get him in front of a, if so many people wanted to get him in front of a, a Trump, why not give him a time? You know, there was, yeah, I mean, Ailes was not super jazzed about the idea, even though they were deeply close because of, again, Ailes, it was Ailes' operation. He would never give control to somebody else. Um, and beyond that, they courted him a couple times, but you know when push came to shove, he wasn't you know a good TV person, and Ailes knew that, and they and so they never really pushed hard. The best they would have offered him was sort of a thing like like Mark Levin has now, which is like an hour on Sundays, but it it never fit. And Limbaugh also always rejected it. He didn't want it, and at the time that he could have had a TV show, which was like the peak moment where he was starting to branch out, 
his genuine interest was in trying to buy NFL football teams. And so he spent uh, most of his external work was actually trying to cultivate, um, you know, the ability to buy a team, which, uh, which ultimately fell apart, obviously. But if there was ever a jump point, it was actually at that period in time. And it was never, he was too focused on the NFL deal to try to, um, you know, to try to jump back into broadcasting. Right. Now, now, I brought it up before, and I want to get a little bit into this because this is when I think Rush Limbaugh was at his, his, his peak, and that was the Obama years. I honestly feel like he – like when people think about Trump right now, uh, I mean imagine if, you know, imagine if instead of uh, tweeting a, a few lines every day, Trump went on the air every day for three hours and spoke – and what he said during those three hours – became the conservative talking points of the day for uh to attack the president of the United States Obama. I mean Trump uh, I mean Rush Limbaugh was a guy who you know they they like to bring him up as like some sort of firebrand but I mean he was uh he was cheerleading the Iraq war. He called uh during the Bush administration. He was uh you know he, he I believe he called uh uh, 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 veterans of the war who were against it, a phony, phony uh, soldiers or something like that, they even attacked actual uh, military vets who were against the war. So, I mean, this, I mean, you know, so here was a guy who, who, like you said, straddled whatever he felt he needed to do to maintain relevancy. But uh, during the Obama years, that's when he was, I mean, that's when he reigned. That that's, was peak rush. It was. I mean, he was he was trying to rally people, but also and that that gave and he was, you know, think about it like a boiling pot. And what he was doing was one, keeping the fire hot and two, putting more and more water into it. And and that meant that every day he would sort of define what the narrative was that would keep people together. He really pushed the idea that 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 Obama was a Muslim. So and if you know back then you know it's hard to think about an environment where social media wasn't the dominant force in terms of saturation you know spreading a story to everybody but think about it if you know Fox News at the time with the terrorist fist jab or Obama's it went to madrasas you know that was still a limited audience you know three million people at most two and a half million people at the time Rush Limbaugh would take that Obama's a Muslim and tell twenty million people about it. And then, you know, and say it a bunch of times in those early moments. And that lie applied, that applied for basically every line of attack. And what it also meant is that it would, it would stop and incur others from even beginning to think about cooperation, right? So it really had a policy effect as well, because he was giving advice. If you think if you're a Republican elected official, and they would talk about this, you, if you, if, if Limbaugh said you can't vote on something, that meant you can't vote on it because if you did, he would call you out and being called out by Limbaugh would have, would mean your, your phone would get flooded. It could actually mean you get primary challenge. It could actually turn you off to all Republican donors. So there was fear of a backlash from what would happen if he singled you out, which actually meant that they were even worse than Republicans typically are because he was actually calling the plays. And then the last thing is, there was no attack that he would not reflexively engage in. So when Obama went after um, Joseph Coney uh, and his Lord's Resistance Army, which was like a you know really bad thing, Rush Limbaugh attacked him. And the way he described to his 20 million listeners at the time is that Obama is targeting a, Chris, a group of Christians. And, and it's like, no, he's going after terrorists. This is a bad thing. They're doing, they're doing really bad stuff. But that is how he framed it. And he maintained that narrative. 
Um, and you could go down to most to most nuanced, random thing to the most big stories. Limbaugh would immediately give people why they should be mad about it. Um, you know, they get a new limousine. He freaks out and starts attacking it, claiming that they needed to buy a new limousine because Michelle Obama was too fat to fit into the previous presidential limousine. You know, and that's going to cost you thirty four million dollars because Michelle Obama's overweight. I mean, that's how he was every day was something. And that's, by, by the way, I'm not making that up. He really made that argument. Um, oh, and I so remember, did, that did is have an a, example. Didn't he have a nickname for her, like Moochelle? Moochelle? Yeah, he would call her Moochelle, and and or sometimes Moochelle. And so it was both because she um, he claimed that she was a moocher and living off of the government dole, but that also he relentlessly attacked her as fat, uh, which it never, I just can't get my head around that one, but the idea was that she was a cow. And so he would complain that anytime that anything happened in the White House, they would he would sort of spin this idea that it was because Michelle Obama needed to fix it for her size. Um, it was, and again, it always got back to, not only is she terrible, but she's using your money to fix this thing that she broke or can't fit in and they need to buy new cars. Like it was always spun back to this idea that she's taking from you, um, which of course would make people mad. Right. So, so Angelo, we, we know what Trump did to, to Rush Limbaugh's standing in, in the conservative landscape, but as he, is now go he's now gone and you know we just discussed how his show is going to continue on air for the foreseeable future with all that said what do you think rush limbaugh's effect from beyond the grave is going to be on the conservative movement going forward i think that um what he ultimately did was i you know two pieces one he created a lot of what the the the, the beginning stages of what the right-wing echo chamber is. And right now, every day, they can, you know, the share of voice for the right is somewhere around 60 to 65%. And that means that if you look at all the conversations happening, most of them are actually directly coming from the right. And then the rest of that is split between news and left-leaning content. But the bigger effect is that it, it actually has completely changed the way that the rest of the news media deals with all kinds of stories. Because the right then dominates the spin on reproductive health, climate change, every story in some way, shape or form is designed to inoculate themselves against the criticism that they have an anti-conservative bias. So that's one legacy. And then the second is, I think his, his lasting legacy, or at least the next phase, will be aside from what he did with helping make Trump possible, because I don't think you have Trump without all the groundwork Limbaugh did, is I think he's going to usher in the era of Tucker Carlson, which is a, mm. a a form of explicit white supremacy fascism. It's a different form of what Limbaugh had been doing, but it is in some ways a lot more insidious. And it's sort of, um, yeah, I think it, that is, you know, even though he won't take the time slot, the way that Limbaugh generated a narrative that much of the rest of the right-wing echo chamber would gravitate to is that, Tucker is really replacing that that role. And he is the one really generating the narrative that most of the rest of the right-wing echo chamber kind of centers around in some form and then begins to echo. Right, right. You know, I I, I kept this towards the end because I, I, this is, uh, you know, it's it's more, uh, I don't want to say lighthearted, be, being that it's it's QAnon related and, and that's very sad stuff, what's going on in that world. Uh, but uh, have you seen what they believe is going on with Limbaugh, by the way? <laughs> 
<laughs> but oh no, what what is the new one? Uh, they always have a good a good one. Yeah. All right. So Limba is still alive. Um, the 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 death was faked, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them actually think that Limba might have been uh, no good. It, we talked. You talked mentioned before how he he was you know immersed himself in all the different uh, flavors of of conservatism and right in the right in the right. Uh, he he missed the QAnon boat, it seems, because some of them aren't so sure. But in fact, there is a conspiracy out there that he is actually Jim Morrison of the doors in disguise. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, a good one. I... Right. right. Uh, because if you look, apparently when Jim Morrison went through his uh, his heavy set phase, he sort of has a slight resemblance to Limbaugh with like long hair. Um, <laughs> that definitely fits. <laughs> but they, the, the other half believe that uh, he was put in a device called a med bed, which is this MRI sort of looking medical bed that they think exists that the government is hiding from everyone. That basically you go into this device and in two and a half minutes, it immediately cures whatever sickness or ailment you have. So Limbaugh went in this and he's hiding out uh, why he's hiding or what he's plotting to do. Who knows, but apparently, uh, you know, when you think about it, though, it is sort of sad because if you really look at the core of it, you know, these are all so many of these conspiracies are about people just never actually dying. And I wonder how many of these people just have a really hard time accepting death and they do. I know. And they do everything possible to just imagine that. No, no one's actually ever dying. They're just pretending to die and doing something else because I hope that happens to me. You know, I I don't I don't. Yeah, no, I do. I think you're right. It's funny you say that because a lot of these conspiracies eventually have that that angle bolted onto them. It's like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, I, I know we're believing this thing about Q and everything, but guess what? We never die. Like, can we all can we get on that one, too? And everyone's like, yeah, we never die. All right. Sure. It, it's all it's it's relevant. And because JFK is back and, you know, and I mean, it's like it's always something. Um, yeah, 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 that's true. It, they do always get back to that, don't they? Um, I, I understand, but it is weird how they always sort of jam that in there. I thought you were going to say that they were that he was coming back, that he was part of Trump's because, you know, they right now they're really hopped up that Trump's coming back to be president in the beginning of March um, and that the military he's been assembling his generals. And uh, I thought you were going to say that they thought it's because Limbaugh was going to be like their commander oh, of the that... Trump's new army. You know, don't, don't give I, me any ideas. Not. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Sergeant Limbaugh reporting for duty. <laughs> uh, Angela, thank you so much for, for joining me uh, today. Well, please plug whatever you'd like to plug. You, Oh, yeah, I saw recently. And this is this is great because I, I've noticed this. And I, I was reading some great research over the past couple of months. Y- you are working on a project that specifically deals with with misinformation in the Latino community, something that was totally ignored pretty much by all the fact-checking and disinfo researchers uh, during the presidential election because, you know, there was so much spent on, you know, English language stuff. And then you look and and so many in in Latino, Hispanic media, there was just misinformation running wild. And and I'm going to even go further. I I, I live in Queens. And so I noticed here especially uh, a lot of uh, misinformation in in, in Chinese and and Korean going around too on on the specific apps. Yeah. But but not to get out of the off off topic, you're specifically working on a... um, uh, yeah. organization that's going to deal with uh, taking on uh, uh, misinformation in the Latino market head on. 
That's right. We partnered up with, uh, you know, we, we do media monitoring. We have all this infrastructure. We have a small group of people here that do Spanish language monitoring and some uh, that that overlaps with like Latino audiences. And so it was just a good merging. You know, Voto Latino is deeply connected to the community. They do amazing digital work and organizing and voter registration. They've been dealing with the consequences of, uh, of a lot of this misinformation, too. So the new project is basically taking what we do in terms of media monitoring and infrastructure, um, adding more capacity there. So we actually are not just treating this the way I think political campaigns would, which is sort of one time kind of thing. You know, if we're really going to do this work, it needs to be lasting. It just can't be a fleeting, hey, you know, transactional approach, which means we actually have to have cultural competency and staff that are really thinking about it. And uh, and the same thing applies on the Voto Latino front is actually giving them, I think sometimes all campaigns always have to have the secret weapon. No one knows how to actually fix this. And what actually is needed is a, a fund that is designed to do experimentation. And that's why we're calling it more of a lab um, because it's, it makes it clear to everyone that's investing in it that it's the idea here is to actually, no one expects all these scientists to immediately have the answer, right? You experiment until you find the solution. It's the same thing here that there does need to be a more dedicated set of resources that actually does that actually is focused on analyzing it, and that's a lot of the work that Boda Latino brings. They have the expertise and the capacity to actually run a lot of those experiments. And um, the worst that, look, the worst case scenario is doing nothing. Um, I feel really good about this project, though, and I, I, I think it it is genuinely needed. So, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about it. Angelo Caruson, uh, CEO and president of Media Matters, the creator of the Stop Rush campaign. You know, uh, Rush has been stopped. Uh, it's stopped. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks. Take care. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to go. To, before we do that. Patreon.com slash MattBinder. Support this show. And, uh, you know, it helps me grow the program. Uh, we, you know, I've noticed that the live stream audience is ticking up. And we have a regular base, uh, you know, level of people watching every week that's higher than the week before. I mean, obviously, it ebbs and flows based on specific topics in the news. But generally speaking, you know, the show has, has grown. Um, I'm noticing it with the podcast downloads, although I will say that the live stream, the live show and the video stuff is now uh, for the first time over these past few few months, I would say, actually now outnumbering the the podcast. I mean, the, it's very close, but for the longest time they were in line with well, actually, for the longest time, the podcast was blowing it out of the water in terms of the video, the live stream out of the water when it comes to numbers. And then live stream got grew and got close. And now, uh, you know, every week, not not the full, not people watching live right now, but I would say weekly live stream viewers, people who go back and watch the replays at it too. All those combined are now uh, sort of uh, neck and neck with the podcast numbers. So it's really been interesting to watch this show grow and I couldn't do it without you guys. So uh, patreon.com slash mattbinder. We lost a few patrons over the past week or two. Uh, before that, we were just we, we were about a dozen people away from hitting the next goal, I believe. So that was that was so it was like it was like God, he's got, I got so close and then fell a little bit further away. But it happens. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, if you could afford to 
become a patron. I would appreciate it. And if you can't afford to do so, again, please take care of yourself and your family first. The times are tough. I totally get it. YouTube.com slash Matt Binder. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at Matt Binder. Follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Matt Binder. Some of you people are watching this via the simulcast on Twitch right now. Uh, when I say some, I do mean a, a, a few, really, because uh, the audience is more on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I do see you, uh, Twitch viewers. Uh, if you're on the YouTube live stream and you want to give a one-off donation, you could just drop a super chat right now. Or, or, I'll, I'll read them super chats uh, for sure. You get a guarantee read. In fact, I'm going to read them right a few right now. Uh, Samantha Sider with two super chats. Rush can rust in piss like Ronnie Reagan and Thatcher. Okay, Samantha Sider. And uh, Samantha continues... What would you do if you had reach had the reach of Rush on AM radio? Oh, well, for one, I would plug the Patreon, patreon.com slash Mavinder. <laughs> uh, you know, I would, I would uh, honestly, I would use my my influence for good. I mean, you know, right now there are millions of people without power for days now in Texas due to a storm. I would use that influence to raise money to help those people that we're talking about something right now. I wouldn't, uh, take a flight to Cancun like Ted Cruz did though. That's for sure. Um, I am going to, uh, read some, actually I meant to do this last week. I think, uh, some of the new patrons who I haven't read on the show yet. Uh, since the last time I name-dropped the new patrons, these people have joined. Sammy A, Ken K, Joseph G, uh, more, uh, more, more Al A, uh, Brandon H, Robert L. And now I don't know if I named these people, but I'll just name a few more. Uh, Jennifer R, Allison K. And GM, uh, thank you guys so much for uh, becoming patrons. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, you help the show go and go and grow. Uh, all right, folks, we're going to go to the second half of the show right now. Uh, if you're on the live stream, you can continue to stick around. You'll be able to catch it. If you're not on the live stream, you got to become a patron to catch the uh, audio version of this. Um, I will read more super chats. I will take calls. Give me a second to log into the phone system for callers. Um, you can call into the show by opening up Skype and typing in doomed live and the username. I think it's doomed live underscore one will pop up. I promise you I've said this for weeks. I'm going to register an easier to remember uh, without an underscore for for one thing. Uh, but for now, type in doomed live and it'll pop up doomed live underscore one. Ah, what else? What else? I uh, think that's. Oh, drop an iTunes review if you haven't yet. Drop a Google Play. Whatever you, whatever, wherever you listen. Oh, shows on Spotify and Stitcher. I don't think I've plugged that. Uh, it wasn't on there for a bit for some reason, but it is now one hundred percent. I have confirmed it visually myself, and via email confirmation with both platforms, you can now listen to the show on Spotify, and on Stitcher. If you have a Spotify account. Uh, this would be a big help, especially if you, uh, 
you know, if 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 you don't have a Spotify account, I think you still do this. Um, type in "Doomed" uh, with Matt Binder on uh, Spotify, and I think you could follow the show, right? And I think that should do something to bump it up the charts or let people know that it has lots of fans or something like that. I don't know, but it's something you guys can do to help. So iTunes review, lo- uh, follow it on Spotify. Uh, that's all that, that, that's, that's all, that's all. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I'll see you guys. Uh, oh, I am working on a new video, uh, a new st- a standalone YouTube video, uh, investigation, like my Boogaloo Boy one. Uh, I wanted it out this week, but I had to do some other stuff. Um, not going to say this upcoming week, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be this upcoming week, but don't hold me to it. But I think I'm going to have the next one out this upcoming week. But until then, uh, I will definitely see you guys next week for the next episode of Doomed.